podcast talking all things health technology and NHS IT. Welcome to Digital Health Unplugged. Hello everyone and welcome to the latest edition of Digital Health Unplugged. My name is Hannah Crouch, editor at Digital Health and host for today's episode. And my guest today is Dr. Hussein Gandhi, or as some of you may know him on Twitter, as Dr. Gandalf, the digital and tech GP. So, Dr. Gandhi, just to kind of kick things off, um, some of our listeners might not be aware of you, um, but this is a good plug, I suppose, for your Twitter. Um, Could you give a quick summary of your background and kind of where your interests lie in the world of kind of primary care IT? Sure. Uh, so I'm Dr. Hussain Gandhi, or on Twitter, I'm at Dr. Gandhi 52 Just for clarity, I'm not 52 years old. Um, <laughs> and I'm a GP partner in Nottingham City Centre um, at Wellspring Surgery. I'm also a GP trainer. Um, so I hopefully educate the new tranche of GPs coming through. I'm a PCN clinical director for Nottingham City East as well, um, LMC representative. But what more people know me about is my eGP learning channel, which is a video and podcast kind of way of trying to help share the journey of primary care technology and how to use it more effectively both as a clinician and for patient care. Brilliant that was a very very well rehearsed summary thank you very much. Um, Now we're recording this episode um, the morning after a a bit of a shake-up at the Department of Health and Social Care. I'm I'm sure the majority of our listeners are aware that we've got a new health secretary uh, Steve Barkley who was appointed late last night after Sajid Javid, sorry, resigned. Um, Now, I'm hoping by the time we publish this episode that Steve Barkley is still in post. Um, We don't know with this government at the moment. Um, But Mm -hmm. Dr Gandhi, what are your kind of thoughts on the new health secretary? Well, a bit of a surprise. We're now in our third new Secretary of State for Health and Social Care in the past year, which is, um, you know, um, unusual. Um, I don't think there's been that many changes as far as I can remember. I think he's the 56th or something like that, if memory serves me correctly. And and what a birthday present for the NHS as well on its (laughs) 74th birthday, you know, a brand new Health Secretary of State. Um, I I mean, it's going to be interesting to see where he wants to lead the NHS and and the direction of travel he's got in mind. Um, Obviously, he's by, by definition a banker, by origin similar to Sajid Javid in terms of the financial background rather than the health background um, and you know there is that view of does he have the understanding of what health actually means does he need to I don't know that's a debate for another time but definitely he's got a challenge ahead of him you know the NHS is in significant state of challenge um, both in terms of you know general care but also especially in general practice we're seeing absolute crisis that's building and growing uh, day by day in terms of you know the concept of how people are trying to access general practice but more importantly workforce and provision in the fact that we are seeing many people leaving general practice day in day out uh, and you know that needs to change otherwise there isn't going to be provision and and the current challenges many of our patients currently face are just going to deepen and and worsen unfortunately. Yeah and I think it'd it'd be good to see kind of how he kind of takes on the whole aspect of technology Um, it's really rather unfortunate because obviously just last week we had the publication of the, the digital health and care plan. Um, and, you know, there were all these kind of plans set out there for kind of a, a which included a, a digital workforce strategy. So it will be really key to see what he does. Um, while Sajid Javid, I don't think has been sort of as maybe tech savvy as his predecessor, mm. his predecessor, Mac Hancock, um, there were sort of things that were being done. So it'd be interesting to see what, what Barclays takes going to be. Um, but thank you very much for, for that kind of, uh, knee-jerk reaction to Steve Barkley. Um, but let's kind of get into the, the main kind of thing of the podcast, which is kind of talk about uh, IT and primary care. 
Um, and I just kind of like to, to kind of kick things off by getting your view of the current state of things in uh, IT and primary care. So what do you think kind of been a, a success and, and what do you think the pain points are? Well, we've definitely seen some recent shakeup. I mean, uh, the potential sale of EMIS to um, uh, Optum UK is, you know, it's groundbreaking in some ways because it's the largest primary care health IT sale in history at $1.5 billion potentially once the sale goes through. Um, and it's definitely taken on some concepts of how people see IT healthcare. You know, EMIS is a, one of the two main clinical systems used within England. There are others, but, you know, EMIS and System 1, which is the one that I use in practice, are pretty much the main two um, across the whole country. And how they work together actually impacts patient care and also how they continue to function massively impacts primary care because actually we spend most of our time in these clinical systems delivering care and if they can't do the job then we can't do the job it's as simple as that um, you know, primary care has always led in terms of health IT compared to the other areas yeah. of the NHS. Um, but actually, there's this expectation that it can do so much more than it probably does currently. And interoperability for me is at the absolute heart of that. Um, so what I would love to see happen and change is the fact that interoperability becomes more the focus so that actually we can do the job more effectively. Mm. And then with that um, user ability, um, a lot of these systems are to be frank, archaic in the way that they're designed. They don't use modern technology. They don't use, you know, modern systems and and, and structure to help people use the systems, both from a clinician point of view, but also from a patient perspective. I think we are seeing some change in that. But one of the things I often have to remind people that tech is the tool, but that doesn't mean that everybody can use it. You know, mm-hmm. um, no tool is as good as the person that can actually use it in the first place. So we need to focus on making it more usable. And this is kind of just branching off those questions because you're right. A primary care was always seen as um, almost like a trailblazer, really, with technology. Kind of, they were the first ones to digitize and and the, the red records and stuff. Do you think they've sort of been left behind in recent years? There's always such a focus on, I think, um, acute kind of the NHS hospitals. Do you think sometimes primary care is almost like a forgotten child sometimes? Um, often, yes. I think yeah. primary care is also seen as, as the forgotten person in the healthcare system, despite the fact it does 90% of the yeah. NHS work for, you know, less than 9% of the actual total budget and stuff. Um, but I think in terms of how it works and, 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 you know, the effect that it can have, it can be so much more effective if we have the usable tech mm. to do that. Uh, and we saw that, you know, over COVID, obviously, there's this significant almost overnight shift to yeah. using online consultation. Actually, majority of the public were able to do it. The question of whether they want to do it is a separate matter. Um, yeah. And of, often it's about trying to make that process as easy as possible. But actually, we're finding many more people are wanting remote consultations, despite what things like the Daily Mail and other people tend to say. Um, but actually, you have to make it effective and you have to make it functional. And if you can do that, Actually, the experience is really positive. I've had many experiences where I've, you know, led people who are 75, 80 plus through how to send me an image um, so that I can better help manage their health needs rather than having to bring them all the way into the practice just so for me to eyeball something to tell them what actually yeah. is out of the, the two or three things I've already got in my mind from the history I've taken. Yeah. And, and actually that process, if we can help patients understand how to use the tech more effectively then actually that can help make the journey for everybody so much more effective and more importantly free up that that valuable time resource we have of the clinicians for those that genuinely can't use remote technologies and stuff mm. and so i'm going off, off branch again but do you think it's often a, a false narrative sometimes when there's the claim that oh you know older people are um almost kind of ostracized when it comes to you know technology like remote consultations or you know doing things online 
is there an appetite there for the older generation to kind of embrace technology? Absolutely. I think, you know, many people will probably have that view that if you're old, that you don't want to use technology. Yeah. Well, we know that that's not true. OK, yes, there is a high propensity to maybe not have the technology. So that's one thing. Um, and then there's the element of how usable it is. But actually, if you make these processes easy enough, then, as I said, many people can be led through that process fairly easily. And actually, once they've found it a positive experience, they do it. I mean, we've seen that with Internet banking. We've seen that with various other yeah. aspects like Internet shopping and stuff. And um, how is this any different? Well, it's, it's the route. And as long as you explain that route effectively and make it as easy as possible, actually, a high proportion will be able to do that, including those who are in the more senior years. Perfect. And um, one thing that I did notice on your Twitter recently, which I thought was really, really interesting, um, was that you were invited to speak at um, NHS England headquarters um, mm -hmm. to the likes, I think, of Tim Ferriss, who's the, the new director of transformation at the Transformation mm -hmm. Directorate, I think is his current title. Um, are you able to kind of give a, a bit of a tease or understand probably can't go into the full details about what was discussed and, and what did you make of being invited? And, and do you think that's a positive step? Well, firstly, I was honoured to be invited and, and specifically I was asked to talk around, you know, the concept of how we use um, technology to engage with patients and specifically more around social media. Um, Tim was really receptive to wanting to hear everybody's voice throughout the room. Um, and I think, you know, it was a positive experience for me. We even saw a change happen pretty much straight after that meeting directly. So yeah. one of the things I commented on is that actually NHS England's um, own broadcast channels and Twitter and stuff um, don't really comment or, uh, or basically highlight general practices positive work they're great at doing it for other parts you know um, in terms of um, pharmacy care hospital care that kind of stuff but the positive messages around general practice you know were far short uh, of all the other stuff they were promoting uh, and actually what he's committed to pretty much that evening was that at the very least um, every single day there'll be one post about general practice and the work that he's doing and as far as I can tell they've kind of stuck up to that so yeah gr a great positive change from my perspective in terms of advocating the positive work that general practice does rather than unfortunately all this constant negative rhetoric that we see from some areas of the media and stuff. Um, but it, it was an interesting meeting. I think they were very receptive to hear the, the, the challenges that many of the clinicians are facing general practice and also from the patients. So we did have representatives talking on both sides of, of you know, uh, um, the coin. And I think, you know, it's really important for them to hear those messages because often you don't unless you hear it directly from those involved. I'm very keen to, one of the key things I pushed about was about how patients need to be led to understand what the healthcare system is trying to offer currently. It is different to what it was 10 years ago. It is different what it was even five years ago. And actually that whole concept of actually, first of all, there isn't enough GP, so you may not see a GP now. And why actually seeing these other roles that we have is really important. Also, you know, why are we trying to use more tech resources to help you to actually improve and streamline that patient journey so that you're seeing the right person at the right time yeah. for the right reason is really important and also recognizing the fact that there are going to be some people where tech is not the answer you know yeah. as much as i'm an advocate for tech there are definitely times where it's not effective and one of the challenges i will put to all of the the providers that do this is how do you incorporate those who don't speak english which mm -hmm. is a real challenge for me and my population that i look after you know we have numerous consultations which are non-english based and actually all the tech that we have suddenly falls apart because people can't actually understand it because they don't speak English and stuff yeah. so how are they supporting those patients with those health needs and those health inequalities yeah it sounds really interesting and great that um you said that uh, Dr Ferris was really receptive that's kind of what we like to hear um moving away from kind of national well I suppose this is still a national policy um last year and sort of the last couple of years um 
we've had a kind of movements around patient data, obviously over COVID um, mm-hmm. sort of um, policies were sort of put on hold while, you know, they shared data about sort of vaccines and, and where cases were. Um, but something that did emerge was a, about the general practice data for planning and research, uh, which is commonly known as, I hope I get this right, GPDPR, uh, not to be confused with GDPR, um, very, very similar. But obviously, it went through several rounds. Obviously, it was introduced by NHS Digital, did not prove popular. Um, then they kind of um, moved the implementation date. I think it was originally July. Then they moved it to September. I think ultimately, then they scrapped it um, and just says, we'll introduce this new data collection service when when people are ready. Um, you know, it really did not sort of get much um sort of praise or you know people weren't very happy about it so I just kind of wanted to get your thoughts from a GP because when I've spoken to other GPs in the past they said it would really sort of amount to their workload and it would really kind of add on Mm -hmm. to what they were doing on their on their day-to-day lives so I was just really keen to kind of get what your thoughts were. Sure. Um, so at the time, I was very vocal about this because it's primary care health tech and yeah. that kind of stuff. And, and simply put, it was a car crash. There's no other way of describing it. Um, it was NHS Digital trying to push through, I think, a policy, um, which many people were very suspicious about the root and reason for doing it so quickly and so actively, given the fact it's basically a rehash of the care data platform that came across a few years ago. Um, yeah. And, you know, um, I, I think the premise of what they're trying to do is really positive thing. We've seen that having using healthcare data effectively can be really positive in terms of the outcomes for our population. We saw that with the vaccination look in terms of when COVID hit, which populations Mm -hmm. actually needed that support and focus and, and more importantly, which ones are the most susceptible to certain health challenges and actually you know, that research element is really important. It's one of the reasons why actually sometimes the UK is really at the forefront of what it can do. However, the key point was the security and the trust in how that data was going to be used. And that was the part that was not addressed. Uh, And because of that, and because of the history we have with our current government in terms of trust, I think many people felt that this was being pushed through with a way of privatizing access to that healthcare data, which let's remember, healthcare data is probably the most sensitive data that you have on record in terms of what you do. You know, Google's amazing at what it can extract from you by what you do by behaviors online and stuff Mm. like that. But healthcare data is that most personal element of it. So how they approached it, I think, was absolutely wrong. There was definitely a push to involve your GP practice in the yeah. consent process. And I think that was the part that many practices felt that this was just ridiculous because the amount of extra workload it was creating at a time where we were already struggling to deliver mm-hmm. care because we were coming out of you know the whole COVID aspects and things. And obviously, then we went into the third wave of, of COVID yeah. as well. You know, it was just th- that recognition that this was not thought through. There could have been so many easier ways to implement this that didn't involve, you know, contacting the GP practice and having to take that time. You know, we, I was having consultations with patients trying to explain, um, you know, that their healthcare data access instead of being able to see them for their yeah. healthcare needs. Mm-hmm. And actually that was taking me away from, you know, patient care. And our reception teams were being drowned out by, you know, the, these challenges and trying to help patients understand their, their needs and wants and stuff. And actually, it was poorly thought through. It was mm. a, a really, you know, like I said, it was a car crash process. And as you mentioned, eventually it got scrapped because there was the absolute recognition that NHS Digital and, and you know, the government hadn't thought this through at all. Mm. And they needed to do a lot more work to help on patients understand what was going to happen the clinicians to understand what was going to happen with their data and why it was being used effectively and more importantly make that security and safety and that trust a part of it Mm. and we've yet to see that happen so I think that speaks volumes as well. I mean were you I guess 
in some ways NHS Digital did react and they did kind of alter it and they you know they've, they've moved towards potentially a different approach are you were you happy with that I mean I now know that they're we've had the gold acre review and the data strategy and I think trusted research environments seem to be the the big thing at the moment that they're mm-hmm. putting all their eggs in one basket of these of this kind of system is that do you think the right way to go I think it's definitely better than what we had. Um, mm. I think we're miles away from what we had. Um, I think there still needs to be that concept of how does, how is the consent process going to work? You know, mm. I, I'm clearly concerned about the fact that it's still going to end up being some aspects that have to involve, you know, doing stuff with your GP practice. Well, actually, yeah. why can't we automate a lot of that? Why can't we make that, you know, something that's simple as an online form that can be then integrated within the patient records and, and not even involving the practice itself in terms of having to manage paper? You know, they were asking us to print off forms and have a signed yeah, wet signature yeah. for patients that then had to be uploaded uh, you know to, to manage and it, it's, it's just ridiculous that we are talking about a health it system but still going back to basics and having a physical wet signature to make that a, a viable prospect and actually it was the practice's responsibility to manage that rather than actually this was something that was being forced on practices to do um by a national um you know drive and stuff so you know it didn't quite fit. And I think if they still insist on having that process, they're still going to get a lot of pushback from practices mm. and more importantly from patients as well. Yeah. So essentially what kind of advice would you give them, you know, going forward if they do try and kind of sneak through another GP DPR situation, what would you, cause I'm, I know that the one thing at the time they said that there was very little communication um, mm-hmm. surrounding the program. It kind of was sprung on a lot of GP practices. They didn't really know what to make of it. What, what would you suggest they do going forward? So first of all, give plenty of time. Mm-hmm. Secondly, involve the organisations that are actually going to help you understand what the processes are and how they're going to impact, you know, service, you know, delivery, importantly. Um, and more importantly, j- just be sensible, you know, yeah. and, and be transparent because that's the problem. A lot of this was not a transparent process and, that, and that's why people had suspicions and that's why, you know, many areas were just simply saying, look, this is not correct. You're not doing this the right way. You're talking about healthcare data in a way that suggests that that's not how it's being used effectively. And then kind of going back to um, what you're saying about interoperability, which I think is always the the, the silver bullet almost, the, the problem that everyone wants to solve. And yep. we obviously have ICSs or integrated care systems coming into statutory footing um, last week. Um, mm-hmm. you know, and they're, I think one of their main targets being set by the government that included in this health and care plan, digital health and care plan, sorry, was this idea that people can get a complete medical record view of a patient and I'm you know that kind of like extends to primary care secondary care do you think ICSs are going to help with the the kind of the interoperability interoperability sorry it's always a hard word to say the interoperability dream Um, I think they have the potential to do that but I think they've also got a significant challenge to achieve that. Unfortunately, healthcare IT is massively silo-based. You know, mm. um, I, I have uh, you know probably the largest repository as a GP in terms of a patient's healthcare data, but there are various other repositories of those data that exist for each individual patient, stuff held by the hospitals, there'll be stuff held by community trusts, there'll be stuff held by private providers as well. Mm. And actually all that is healthcare data that's really important to be shared effectively. Now, there are systems that allow that to work effectively, but it requires numerous elements of consent. It mm. requires various elements of integration. And actually, that still doesn't mean that that data is usable. And I'll give you a really good example. Um, our local um, midwife service is now moving to a different IT system compared to one they're currently using, which the current one is fully integrated with the GP record. Mm. So when someone is, um, you know, 
uh, found to be pregnant, that information is automatically shared with the GP practice when they've gone to the midwife service. So, you know, there's that element of understanding the healthcare needs. That is now not going to be the case. Mm. And actually, you know, we don't have that information directly. And they're now having to figure out workarounds to make that safe and effective. Because obviously me knowing if a patient is pregnant or not does change how I need to deliver those services to that person. Things like prescribing, that kind of stuff, mm. and, and various other aspects in, of care and things. And that's just a single kind of example of how, you know, not having the information shared effectively can impact patient care because we're having to figure out workarounds, which then cost time, cost money. Okay, mm. people seem to be less bothered about money, which, okay, that's a factor. But for me, it is the time that it takes, and that's taking clinicians away from doing their workload. In my daily system, I have to use about seven different clinical systems just to deliver effective mm-hmm. patient care to people. You know, that is bonkers and people wonder why does it take so long for you know clinicians to do things well if we're having to use various different systems to do the same job that's why you know Mm. um so you know interoperability needs to be at the forefront of this and usable interoperability is the key thing and i'm guessing you've got all different kinds of passwords for all those different kinds of systems absolutely so uh, you know one of the things i talk about often is how to make clinicians lives easy in terms of the work that they do my absolute key tip for many people is to use a password locker or you know those kind of things because actually makes your life so much stress-free by nature of it but but you're right you know i have um, various different passwords many of them reset on a three-month or a six-month basis because the the view of trying to secure health it and you forget them and you have to potentially go down to a two-hour phone call to the it department to fix that process which then means i can't deliver patient care You know, so, um, you know, having these systems aligned so that they work more effectively will, will massively, massively change patient care. Yeah. But unfortunately, the, the impetus to do that is very much around figuring out workarounds rather than looking at the core issues, which is the fact that the sh- data is not shared. Um, yeah. And making that data shared more effectively will significantly improve patient care. Mm. there's always too many passwords because you've probably got your own password your own personal passwords on top of that so god knows how everyone keeps on top of them but um yeah and then yeah (laughs) and then kind of very conscious of time at the moment um i guess this is a very very wishy-washy question but it's one that i think is always good to ask if you had kind of had an, an endless pot of money you found a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow and you kind of had no restraints and you know no kind of barriers you know what would you ultimately like to see happen in terms of technology and digital um across primary care is it you know the dream of interoperability is it you know magic passwords you know what would it be um so actually i believe that that's my question i used to ask on the health I'm stealing your questions <laughs> i know so, so my version was um if you were given a hundred thousand pounds and, and the secretary of state basically said yeah i'll, I'll clear all the red tape and stuff what would you do with that money <laughs> oh um, god i think you things. might need more than hundred thousand pounds these days <laughs> well it was specifically designed to be something but not probably enough to change everything yeah. um i think for, for me so so if i had funds to change things absolutely would be around two aspects so number one is fixing interoperability because i think mm. it does require the investment and the need to do it but actually what i would love to invest in which i think will really tackle health inequalities is having a inbuilt translation service that is trusted for clinicians to use to deliver healthcare to their patients um because one of the things i think many people forget about like i said we talk about health tech and how it can streamline patient care and things but when patients don't speak english actually that massively impacts the journey that they have 
Mm-hmm. Um, and as a result of that, you know, it can impact the type of care that they receive and more importantly, their understanding of the care that they need to happen. And, and that then complicates things. And actually, if we fix that, then I think the patient journeys will be so much more effective. I think the cost to the system will be so much more effective because patients haven't understood what their clinicians have tried to explain to them fully because of the language barriers and stuff. And as well as that, they then represent because they haven't got that fuller understanding of the, you know what they need to do and how why they need to do certain things because it takes time to do that. Mm. Now, you can't change the fact that that understanding is not necessarily there instantly. You can provide translators, but even accessing a translator is a timely process. Sometimes I've been kept on hold for 20 minutes waiting for mm. a translator to come on and then I've still got the consultation to do and that impacts the ability for me to offer effective care to that individual. So looking at translation and the thing that I think many people unfortunately forget is that routine commercial translation services, things like Google Translate that many people are probably use in their daily lives is not viable to use for healthcare translation because actually yeah. organizations like CQC and stuff will penalize you for using, mm-hmm. it's not even that they say you don't use them, they will actually penalize you yeah. for using those systems in place of other things that are thought to be more effective and probably are, but unfortunately more timely and access to them are more challenging and stuff. So an inbuilt translation service that's viable for healthcare needs would be an absolute godsend. Perfect. Well, I think that's a really great place to, to wrap things up. Um, but first of all, I'd just like to say thank you very much, Dr. Gandhi, um, for appearing on Digital Health Unplugged. Um, first time on, and I'm really, really pleased to have you on. Uh, sorry for stealing your last question. Um, but it's been really, really great speaking to you and, and hopefully get to speak to you in the future um, and have you on as another guest at some point. Um, but before we do sign off, I just wanted to say that um, we at Digital Health are always open to hearing um, your podcast suggestion, um, suggestions. Sorry. So whether it's a topic or a person you would like to see featured on an episode, um, please do get in touch. Um, that's enough from me, other than to say thank you very much for listening. And thanks again, Dr. Gandhi, for appearing on the podcast. listening to digital health unplugged we hope you enjoyed this episode for more follow us on spotify apple podcasts or your favorite podcast platform and to find out about our latest news and events head to our website digitalhealth.net